The title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Ambition, and the subtitle is How to Achieve What I Really Want. So how to achieve what I really want. Now, every generation makes comments like these. I will not spend as much time at work as my parents do. I will listen to my children more. I'll spend more time with them. I will not argue as my parents do. I will not be as materialistic as they are. And I'll value people for what they are, not for what they work at, how much they earn, or where they live. And finally, I will do with my life what I really want to do. I will not sell my soul, I'll be free. However, since time began, the tendency for each generation is to make the same mistakes as the previous ones. Most people will say that they love their parents. Very few will say that they would like to turn out like their parents. If I asked you, would you like to turn out like your mother and father? Would you like to have their life? Most people say no. If you asked anybody, would they want to live the life you live? Nobody will take it. Nobody wants your life. And what does that say for it? And unless there's a fundamental change, your children will look at your life and say they do not want to turn out like you. And to resolve that I will be different is not enough. There are many things we know we should do, and we don't. And there are many things we know we shouldn't do, and we do. To answer the question, how to achieve what I really want, the first question is, what do I really want? And if I say the standard things like marriage, children, wealth, fame, adventure, power, and all these things, then the question that naturally arises is, why do I want these things? And so we're led back to what is the ultimate aim of human life. And there's a story which indicates this. There's a fisherman who goes out to sea early in the morning and he catches his fish along with his crew. And they sell the fish in the market and they've turned the boat upside down on the beach and they're resting happily lying on the back of the boat. And it gets to about 12 o'clock in the afternoon or at noontime and a very busy businessman on his business lunch comes striding up to them and he asks the skipper, what are you doing? Why are you lying here? And the skipper says that they went out that morning had caught their fish, had sold it and now they were just lying here. And the, uh, the businessman says, well, why don't you go out again and catch another load of fish? And the skipper says, why? Why would I do that? And he said, well, if you did that, if you went out twice a day for a period of time, you'd end up saving enough money to buy a second boat. And the skipper asked, well, why would I want a second boat? He says, well, then you could employ a second crew and they could work for you and you could pay them the minimum wages and then take the surplus profits. And the skipper said, but why would I do that? He says, well, if you do that for a period of time, you could end up with a whole fleet of boats. 
and you could buy houses and yachts and whatever else you wanted. And the skipper asked, but why would I do that? So that you could rest happily. And the skipper said, but I'm already resting happily. And that's the purpose behind the acquisition of anything. It is the ultimate aim of human life, is to be happy. And the Shankaracharya, a sage from India that recently died, the school went to, he made the following statement. In the worldly setup, people go to work and get their wages. The wages are used to buy goods they need. And goods are bought and used for pleasure. Pleasure is not the same as the peace of the self or contentment in liberation. Wages, goods, and derived pleasures do not ultimately bring in the peace of the self. And thus follows the inquiry into philosophy. People in general become involved in the money they earn, the goods they possess, or the type of pleasure at which they aim. And so they miss the ultimate aim of the peace of the self. And the peace of the self should never be lost from sight. So the question for each one of us is for how long each day are we really aiming at happiness? Or do we forget and aim for something less? Newton, the great scientist, who by any ordinary measure would have been considered to have been a highly successful man, soon before his death, he said this about his life. He said, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell an ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. So perhaps we've all sold our true and substantial happiness to collect the pretty pebbles of this creation. Leonardo da Vinci, who again by any measure would be classified as a great man, died weeping in the arms of the King of France, saying that he'd missed the whole purpose of life. The ultimate aim is peace, happiness, freedom, or rest. And everything a human being should do should help to fulfill that aim. And nothing should be done that postpones one's happiness or impedes it. Everybody wants to be happy. People do not have to be taught to want happiness. But wanting happiness is not enough. Why do all or nearly all fail in the pursuit of true and substantial happiness? And have you achieved what you really wanted to yet? And when do you expect to? When do you expect to be able to say, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve? And do you know anybody or many who have at any stage in their life who can say, now I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. The vast majority fail, and the question is, why will you be any different? The desire to be happy is not enough. It also requires knowledge. One could desire to go to Dublin, but if you don't know where it is, if you don't know, have the knowledge, 
then you can't get there. If you seek to get there under ignorance, well, then you will fail and misery will be the outcome. If you seek under wisdom, well, then the result will be success and therefore happiness. And the possibility is that our knowledge is untrue and incorrect and therefore we never really achieve what we want to achieve. But the desire to be happy and the knowledge of how to be happy is also not enough. Those two are not enough. We also need the strength to be able to enact what we know. And we often fail to do what we know we should do. We might fail to study when we know we should study. We might fail to end a relationship when we know it's not going to work out. We might fail to write a letter of thanks when we know we should. A person who knows what he should do, but has not the strength to do it, is unlikely to achieve what they really want to. So to achieve what I really want to achieve, there are three necessary factors. One is the desire for happiness. Two is the true knowledge. Three is the strength of being to enact that knowledge. The desire we all have, but the true knowledge and strength of being is lacking in most. And we decide according to our knowledge. And if our knowledge is wrong, the decisions are wrong. And the decisions you make shape your life. When I was 24, I was at a discotheque and I saw an extremely good-looking girl on the far side of the dance floor. And I decided I would approach her. But she was so good-looking, hesitancy arose, and I stopped in my tracks and waited about 10 or 15 seconds. And then I bucked up the courage and moved as quickly as I could towards her. And when I was two yards away from her, somebody else got there first. <laughs> and there I was standing like an absolute idiot. <laughs> so I immediately swiveled to the right and asked the first girl up to dance that was on my right. And she's my wife. <laughs> and I always tell my wife, if I'd only been 10 seconds faster, <laughs> life would have been completely different. So 10 seconds, just a moment of hesitancy, and your life takes a completely different turn. So here are a number of decisions. I've just taken five. They are, I believe, the fundamental ones that will shape your life. The question for you is, do you have the knowledge necessary to decide truly. So the first question is the great philosophical question. What am I or who am I? Now, if you do not know what something is, then you will not know its function. And if you don't know its function, you won't know how to use it. You will actually abuse it shorten its life, and forego the fulfillment of the object itself. If you don't know the function of mankind, then you cannot possibly live a fulfilled life. 
Well, what is the function of mankind? A chisel is for chiseling. A car is for driving. But what is man for? What is his purpose? And in what is he fulfilled? Now, if the person thinks that they are a body, if they come to that conclusion, that's what man is, a body, well then, they will decide to pursue pleasure all their life. If they come to the conclusion that man is mind, then they will pursue knowledge. If they come to the conclusion that man is heart, then they will pursue relationships. And if they come to the conclusion that man is spirit, then they will have a completely different life. So let us look at any creature other than man. Should a dog, for example, be ambitious? Should he accumulate pension schemes, <laughs> investment bonds? Should he forgo happiness today to make progress later on? If we could talk to a dog, would we advise him these things? Would you say to him, why not buy two kennels and rent one out to the dog down the road? <laughs> say a dog took your advice. Do you think it would make him any happier? Some landlord dog. In fact, if somebody loved dogs and they heard you talking like that to a dog, they'd report you to the RSPCA. Now, interesting enough, we wouldn't give this advice to any other creature. And yet, it's the sort of advice we either get ourselves, or it's the sort of advice we give. If it's cruel for a dog, maybe it's cruel for us, this advice. Who said that this was the function of man? Have the wise ever said it? Do the scriptures say it? What is the authority for living one's life like this? Well, here are two descriptions of man from two completely different sources. One is from the Upanishads, which are the great scripture writings of India. And they say that man is eternal, unborn, indestructible, limitless, that his nature is consciousness, knowledge, and bliss, and that he's pure, perfect, and complete. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great American, said, There is one mind common to all individual men. Every man is an inlet to the same and to all of the same. He that is once admitted to the right of reason is made a free man of the whole estate. What Plato has thought, he may think. What a saint has felt, he may feel. What at any time has befallen any man, he can understand. Who hath access to this universal mind is a party to all that is or can be done. For this is the only and sovereign agent. Now, these two descriptions are much larger than our ordinary picture of ourselves. So let's look at this. 
who or what am I? And there's something in our language which is very interesting. If I say, this is my watch, I'm proclaiming the existence of two things, a watch and an owner. Now we say, my body, we say, my body is ill, or my body is well. So what we're announcing is there are two things, there's a body and there's an owner. And we also say, my mind, we say, my mind is confused or my mind is clear. So what we're talking about is a mind and there's also an owner. And we also say, my heart, my heart's in bits or my heart's pretty good shape or whatever. And so what we're talking about is a heart and an owner. So there are four aspects to man, a body, a mind, a heart, and an owner. And the question is, who is the owner? And what's its nature? Bodies suffer pain, but does the owner suffer pain? And the mind forgets, but does the owner forget? And the heart gets hurt, but does the owner get hurt? There is an owner to a body, mind and heart, and everybody should know what it is. And to give you some sense of what this owner might be like, if you were asked the question, have you ever been confused? You can say yes. Some of you could say it now. <laughs> right? And has it been absolutely clear to you that you were confused? So if somebody said to you, what's wrong with you? And you said, I'm confused. And if they said to you, are you sure about that? And you said, I'm absolutely certain, I'm totally confused. Well, how could you be absolutely certain that you're totally confused unless there's something in you that's not confused? Otherwise, you'd have to say, I don't know whether I'm confused or not. So what is it in you that is aware of confusion but doesn't participate in it at all, that never, ever, ever gets confused? And if you come to know the owner you'll find that it is limitless, unborn, indestructible, and all these qualities. You'll never find a change in the owner. And if this owner is unchanging, then it's not born, because birth is a change. And if it's unchanging, then it does not die, because death is a change. And if it's not born and it doesn't die, then it's eternal. There are four possibilities as regards our human existence. The first one which can't be represented on the board is, I don't exist. It hasn't really caught on much because if you tell people you don't exist, they tend not to believe you. But the other three possibilities are that I'm born and then I die. The second one, which is the belief of modern Christianity that I'm born and then I go on forever, which is this one. And the third one is that I'm eternal. And one needs to know the answer to this question. Depending on how you answer this question, 
It will determine what you think you should do with your life and what you really want to achieve. It's very hard to have problems if you're eternal. One consequence, if you decide that you are eternal, is that you will have no fear. What could you possibly be afraid of if you are eternal? Life would then be courageous, generous, and limitless. There's a quotation which is sometimes ascribed to Nelson Mandela, sometimes to a lady called Marion Williamson. So whoever said it, this is what they said. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We are born to manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So the first and fundamental question in order to know what I really want is who or what am I? The second decision that the human being has to make if they are to achieve what they want to achieve is wherein lies my happiness? Is it within myself or in the acquisition of things external to me such as spouse, wealth, power, fame, all these things? Now true happiness is being happy everywhere and in all circumstances. So we're not talking about happiness which comes and goes or happiness dependent on circumstance. And there's a sentence which describes man's happiness and it says, to be happy is to be in tune with man's own nature. And the key word here is nature. It's saying that it's natural to be happy. When people are depressed, you go up to them and you say, what's wrong with you? When you're happy, nobody ever comes up to you and says, what's wrong with you? Because they know it's natural to be happy and it's unnatural to be unhappy. Because it's natural, it doesn't require any education or training or discipline. People simply want to be happy. And because it's natural, it can never be separated from you. So if you take an orange, you can never take the orangeness out of an orange and be left with an object. The orangeness is inherent in the orange, and so the orange can never lose its own nature. And in the same way, man can never lose his own nature so he can never be separated from his or her happiness. We are actually never 
unhappy. We only appear to be unhappy. And how is this possible? Well, it's like if you had a rich auntie in America and she left you a million pounds and the lawyer didn't bother to tell you. You would be a millionaire and not know it. So you would continue to live the life of a pauper, albeit you were a millionaire. So if you wish to avail of something which you have or own, you need to know about it. And if one doesn't know one's own nature, if we're not aware of it, then we don't get the benefit of it. If happiness is natural, then it's effortless, like a natural smile. And if happiness is natural, then misery must be unnatural. Happiness doesn't require any effort. Misery requires a lot of effort. You have to make efforts to be miserable. If you only stopped making efforts, you wouldn't be miserable. Now, everybody believes that you make efforts to be happy. But you need to make no efforts to be happy. But you have to make efforts to be miserable. And there's a very simple proof of this. When you go into deep sleep, everybody's happy. This is why people like sleep so much. You'll notice that you've no aversion to sleep. You don't wake up in the morning and say, thank God that's over with. <laughs> well, it's hard to conceive, but we actually make efforts to be miserable. And the minute we let go all our efforts, we become happy, as in deep sleep. Misery is actually maintained by us. In deep sleep, you just let go. You let go everything, and you're happy. But man finds it very difficult to let go when he's awake. So somebody passes a remark about him or her, says, you know, you're a selfish git or whatever it is. And a sentence lasts five seconds, but it's in your heart for weeks. Because we won't let go. And there's a story or an analogy indicating this. Apparently, if you uh, want to catch monkeys in India, you do the following. So if any of you is interested in a change of profession, listen carefully. What you do is you bury this narrow-necked jar in the ground and you put a sweetmeat into the jar. And then the monkey smells the sweetmeat and he can get his little hand inside the narrow-necked jar and he wraps his fist around the sweetmeat. But because he forms his hand into a fist, he can no longer withdraw the fist from the narrow-necked jar. So he thinks he's trapped. So he screams and screams and screams, and of course the screams then let the hunter know that we've got a trapped monkey here. But all he has to do is let go. But he won't. And so he's in misery. If you want to be totally happy, you just need to let go. You let go your misery. Again, to pursue this statement, if happiness is natural, then it's on the inside. 
and the expression is on the outside. And you notice this. If you ever have the experience of happiness, you'll find that it wells up inside of you. Nobody's ever said, I had the experience of happiness welling up outside of me, about two feet in front of me. It only wells up inside of you. The reason why it wells up inside of you is because that's where it is. Happiness is within you. It's not outside of you. And the question is, where do you search for it? Do you search for it in things outside of yourself? Or do you look for it within? Well, if you're looking in the wrong place, you can't find it. If we think our happiness is outside of us, then we think we can possess it. And if we think we can possess it, then we think we can be dispossessed of it or lose it. But if it's natural, then it's not a possession and can never be lost. If happiness was the outcome of anything external to us, it would have to be limited by that thing. And it would also be transient and not permanent. You can only get a pint out of a pint bottle. So if happiness arises from an object, it's limited by that object. However, nobody in this world searches for limited happiness. If you're asked the question, how much happiness do you want, you say, all of it. Everybody wants all happiness. And if you're asked, for how long would you like this happiness, you say, forever. So every human being wants limitless and permanent happiness, and yet most human beings search for it in the limited and the transient. Therefore, what we all want in truth is a happiness which is not derived from anything. The logical conclusion is that we all want a happiness which is not external. And whether we admit it or not, we're searching for a happiness which source is myself. So happiness is natural, effortless, complete, independent of circumstances, and it's inner. And for this reason, man can be happy everywhere and in all circumstances. But if you think it's outer, you'll never find it. So in order to achieve what I really want to, this is the second decision a human being has to make. Is my happiness inside of me, or does it derive from things outside of me? Is it dependent on people and things, or is it independent? And we are all remarkably casual with our happiness. If I say to you, do you value your happiness? Is it important to you? You'll say yes. It's very important to me. So if I say, well, will you sell me your happiness for £100? You can have £100, but you can't have the happiness. Well, nobody wants the £100. And then if I say £1,000, one or two of you might blink but with a bit of reasoning, you'll say it's not worth it. What's the point in the thousand pounds if I don't have happiness? And if I offer you a billion pounds, but no happiness, then you won't take it. So you could say, I value my happiness at a billion pounds because I won't sell it for a billion pounds. But the truth of the matter is we sell it every day. 
If the coffee is cold, we become unhappy. We sell it for a cold cup of coffee. If the lecture is boring, we sell it for that. Some of you have sold. <laughs> Some people will sell it for a runny egg, for a traffic light that turns red, delays you 45 seconds. Just imagine that. All of that time gone. Well, there's a very simple decision you can make, and you have the good fortune to make it early in your lives. You can make a decision never to sell your happiness. Never. For anything. Not for the idiots of this world. Not for the ignorant. Not for a traffic light. You just refuse to sell your happiness. And if you refuse to sell it, well, then you'll never be miserable again. So that's the second important decision. Wherein lies my happiness? The third one is, will I love and marry and whom and how will I decide? And if this is to be a true decision, then one needs to know what true love is. And today, there's much confusion about this. And there are three characteristics which determine whether love is true or not. When you're listening to this, don't look at your girlfriend or boyfriend. They know how you're answering these questions. The first characteristic of true love is, love does not bargain. You do not love for what you get in return. It's not swappies. I love you if you love me. You love someone because they're lovable. You love them because you can't help loving them. And love is for its own sake. It's its own reward. Those who love are happy, not those who are loved in return. The person who loves is happy. So there's no bargaining. It's a one-sided deal. The second characteristic of true love is that where there is love, there's no fear. Love always conquers fear. So if you take a simple example of, we make it a young mother and she's walking down the street one day and this savage dog comes out and attempts to attack her, well, ordinarily she'd be full of fear and run away. If the next day she's walking down with her child and the dog moves to attack the child, then the mother will stand between the dog and the child because love conquers fear. And if there's no fear when there's love, then there's no restraint. There's no concern that if I give all, I might lose all. There'll be no need to protect my heart to make sure I just don't love too much. No fear that the love will die. No fear, as I said, that if I give all, I will lose all. The fear of false love is if I love unconditionally, I'll be exploited. I'll be vulnerable. But only the strong can truly love. And the strong can't be exploited. If one 
contains or restricts the love in order to protect the heart, you end up with a weak heart. And if you have a weak heart, you will be exploited forever. And the third characteristic of true love is that it has no rival. Whomever you love embodies the best. It's the highest ideal of the lover. And that is why it satisfies. And because it represents the best, it cannot be rivaled. You will not be distracted from the best. So if I think a Ferrari is the best car in the world, and I love Ferraris, and somebody offers me any other car, I will not be distracted from the Ferrari. If you find that when you are with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, that you find yourself looking over their shoulder to see who else is in the room, then it's not true love. And it's not true love when your partner says, I'm torn between two people. We just make it a woman. We say, I love Fred and I love Sid. I love you both equally. This is not love. It's just greed. <laughs> so when you dine out with someone who says he wants everything on the menu, you're not dining with a lover of food. You're dining with a pig. <laughs> and here are some false ideas, and I've just taken a few of them, about love which makes us look in the wrong place for love. One false idea about love is that love has a beginning. So people say, I fell in love last summer. Unfortunately, next year they tell you they fell out of love last Christmas. And people believe this, that they start to love people, and unfortunately they believe that they stop loving people. But this is just completely untrue. You wake up to the existence of love, or you fall asleep to it but you don't start loving or you don't stop loving. A lady who was getting married came to me and she was asking about love and I put this point to her and she said, no, that's just not true. My love for my fiancé definitely began. I have to make up these dates because I can't remember the dates. So I said to her, okay, when did you fall in love with him? And she said, well, I remember I definitely was in love with him at the beginning of the year. And I said, well, okay, let's go back to the previous summer. Were you in love with him then? And she said, no, wasn't then. Sometime in between. I said, can you remember the month? To make up these dates. And she said, October. What day? What day did you fall in love? And so we make it October the 7th. It was a full moon and all that sort of stuff. October the 7th, I fell in love with this man. I said, what time? Let's see, at this stage now she'd stopped, obviously. I said, okay, let's make it six o'clock. Six o'clock, October the 7th, you fell in love with this man. And are you telling me at 5.59 you didn't love the man? And what she admitted is that at six o'clock on October the 7th, she realized that she loved the man. She'd woke up to the fact that she loved him. Love doesn't start and it never ends. And if you look for something that starts and ends, well, then you won't find love. You can't increase it, and you can't decrease it. It doesn't fade in time like a jacket. It's like a light. 
And if you move towards a light, it appears to get brighter and brighter. And if you move away from it, it appears to get smaller and smaller. But the light never changes. The second false idea about love, which makes most of us think that we're not in love, is that for it to be love, it must be special. So we look for some sort of effect. Now, love is the same everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. The love for one's mother, for one's wife, for one's daughter, is exactly the same love. But it expresses itself differently. There's just one true human emotion. And it's behind all relationships. But you don't bring your mother to the pub on a Saturday night. You manifest your love for her in a different way. So love is not special at all. It's universal. But the relationship determines how you manifest it. The third thing is that like becomes love. People waste an awful lot of time in relationships thinking that like is going to turn into love. So they start off, they go out with this person, they say, I like them. You meet them three weeks later and they say, I like them a lot. It's going well. And another three or four weeks, is, I really, really, really do like them. Well, they could wait till hell freezes over, but it'll never turn into love. Like is just an idea in your mind. And love is the substance of your heart. And an idea in your mind will never become the substance of your heart. All that like can ever do is become dislike or obsession. But it will never be love. And the fourth thing is that people believe that if I'm to love someone, they have to measure up to some sort of standard which I hold. So most people have a sort of a shopping list of qualities which the person has to have. And you normally have this shopping list about six inches to the left of the person's head when you're introduced to them. And you tick off, yes, yes, no, 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 right? Goodbye. <laughs> and one day you hope that you're going to get a yes, 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 yes list. And you say, that's the person for me. But it's just a shopping list. And all it does is create a world of rejection. The vast majority of the world is rejected. Now, a young child has no such biases or prejudices. So if you ask a child, do you prefer rich people to poor people or black people to white people or any of these things, it's totally free of all those prejudices. So in fact, the child has the capacity to love everybody. But then it gets a bit older and it starts to develop these prejudices. So it comes up with a statement, I don't like old people because they always go on about how good it was in the past. So that's three billion people out of the way. And then I don't like young people because they play with childish things. That's another billion out of the way. I don't particularly like loud people because they don't allow me to speak. I don't like quiet people because I have nothing to say when I'm with them. I don't like country people because they're a bit slow. <laughs> I don't like city people because they're far too fast for me. 
So with about 10 or 12 conditions, I'm down to about two or three people in the whole world that I could love. And the tragedy is they don't love me. That's what a shopping list does to you. You'll never find anybody to measure up. And the last false idea about love is that opposites attract. This is why saints and sinners hang around together and (laughs) robbers and policemen. People go looking for somebody completely different than themselves and then try and persuade them to live with them for the rest of their lives. Well, if you have false ideas about love, you will pursue a false love and thus not achieve what you really want. And not that this is probably a preoccupation of yours, but anyway, who do I marry and how do I choose from those six billion? Well, the way to do it is to marry someone that you can make happy. Not someone that will make you happy. You look for someone that you can make happy. We're always looking for someone that will make me happy. Which is utter selfishness. And therefore not love. The idea in marriage is to make the other person happy. If you marry someone on the belief that they're meant to make you happy, you will spend your whole life judging whether they are making you happy or not, and you'll spend no time making them happy. And that would be the end of that marriage. The fourth decision, what work will I do? How am I going to express myself in my career? Firstly, why work at all? And Khalil Gibran says that work is love made visible. So the true man works to express the love in his heart. And the false man works for money, power and prestige. And secondly, at what will I work? And how can I ensure that I will be successful at it? And the Shankaracharya again made a comment about this. He said, there is something in all of us which is special or outstanding. Some are intelligent, some are unintelligent, some are strong, some are weak, some are rich, and some are poor. Each should try to serve with that attribute in which he chiefly excels. This is the path of least resistance. It is sure to work as it has already done in the past. There is something in each one of you in which you excel. It's there in you now, and it just needs to be uncovered. And when it does get uncovered, it takes possession of your heart. You know that this is what you've been waiting for all your life. It fires you up. You become alive. Now, if you do not know what this is, how can you discover it? Well, the following question will help. If you won 10 million pounds in the lottery and you never had to work, what would you do? What would you work at? And if it's different from what you are already working at, 
or what you intend to work at, then stop working at it or change your intention. Don't do it. The question reveals where your heart lies. And if you want satisfaction in work, you have to satisfy the heart. What would you do if you didn't have to work? And again, just to help with this, there are three types of human beings. And the question is, which type are you? And dependent on which type you are, this will determine the work you are most suited to. So the first type are the active type. And their interest is in work itself. They're not interested in knowledge and they're not interested in relationships. They like to do the work in the best possible way. They like precise instructions and they like to follow them exactly. They're not interested in why they're doing the work. They like to complete what they start. They're not interested in who they work for and they don't seek the limelight for themselves. Their satisfaction is in the work they do. That's their limelight. They're very regulated in their approach to work. They're not very easy to work for or to work under because they won't let you go until the job is done. The most important thing for them is to get the work done not what you think of them. So they're not particularly concerned whether you like them or not. Just do the job. Such people keep busy and keep others busy too. They are efficient, hardworking, upright, confident, obedient, artistic and steadfast. The second type are the devotional type. And these put their heart into work. They love service. They're not overly concerned with what work they have to do or even why. To them, relationships matter. They like to please or to relieve suffering. So, if you go to a restaurant, the restaurant owner will often come around to the table and say, are you enjoying your meal? He doesn't care whether it's rubbish that he served you or not. As long as you say you're enjoying the meal, he's happy. For him, it's relationship. The chef is not particularly concerned whether you like the meal that he's prepared. All he wants to do is to prepare it perfectly. If he prepares it perfectly, then it's your fault you don't like it. So for the devotional type, life is to do with experiencing others. The intellectual type, they're not interested in action or people. Understanding is what matters. They patiently hear and analyze and they want to know why. In fact, if you don't tell them why, they find it impossible to take an instruction. If you say, just do it, they can't. They say, why? What's the reasoning behind it? What's the benefit? They want to know what's the cause. They would make a lousy nurse or doctor. They would be more interested in the disease than the patient. 
They say, oh, what an interesting disease we have here as the patient dies. So you get scientists and actuaries and economists and analysts and people like that. What work you should do, what will satisfy you, will be determined by your nature, not by the money, power or prestige. You won't be able to stick at something for 40 years for the money, the power or the prestige. They don't make hearts like that. And the last decision, is my aim to contribute to the life of others or to take what I can for myself? So for whose sake is my life? Am I a giver or a taker? No man is an island. An individual can achieve very, very little on his own. For you to get here, let's say you got here by car, maybe a million people had to cooperate for you to get here by car. They had to discover the oil, get it out of the ground, refine it, bring it to Ireland, sell it to you, build roads, keep out of your way as you drove along it, just so you could get here. You could do very, very little on your own. To achieve your plans requires the cooperation of many. And to enhance your life, you have to enhance the life of others. And there was a famous classical economist called Henry George. And he gave this analogy. He said, if you can imagine a fertile land that's not occupied by any human being, and then settlers come along to it. So we make this one settler and he comes along in his little wagon and over the hill and he comes into this beautiful valley. And there are thousands and thousands of acres in this valley. So he decides that he and his family will settle down here. And he's a superb farmer. So he can grow food for thousands. But he's a lousy house builder and all other things. So they live in a very poor shack they dress badly. If there's any serious illness, the children will die or do die. But they eat like lords because he can grow food for thousands. Then after a while, another guy comes along in his wagon over the hill and he's a house builder. He's actually from Kerry. And he says to him, I can't grow food at all. But I can build houses. So what I'll do is I'll build you a house and me a house and I'll maintain it if you will grow the food for my family as well. So after a while they're both living in six-bedroom detached shacks with jacuzzis and the works and all that sort of stuff. So they live now in these magnificent mansions and they eat like lords, but they dress dreadfully. So the next guy comes over on the wagon train, used to work for Ralph Lauren in the design department. And uh, anyway... He says to him, I can dress you perfectly. So I will dress everybody in the valley as long as you build me a house and give me the food. So now they dress superbly and they eat like lords and they live in great big mansions. And every person that comes into the valley enhances the life of the person who's just come in and everybody else who's already there. 
So the moral of the story is you take what you need for yourself and you give of your abundance. This is how the life of everybody is enhanced. You cannot achieve what you really want to without the cooperation of many, many others. To get their cooperation, you should enhance their lives. So, these were, I think it's five decisions. How you decide, the knowledge that you use to make these decisions will shape your life. But it's not enough. Because what about the capacity to enact your knowledge? And the capacity of a human being is determined by the level of consciousness that that human being enjoys. And you'll notice that we have our good days and our bad days. So one day somebody tells you a telephone number. I'll just make up one. They say 289-4725. And you just remember it. You don't have to write it down anywhere. And forever you can remember that number. And another day somebody gives you the number and you say 28 what? And then you go 289 what? And they eventually write it out on a piece of paper for you which you can't remember where you put it. So the levels of consciousness will determine what knowledge is available to you and the strength that you have to enact it. There are many levels of consciousness, but I'm just going to divide it into four. In sleep, you're not capable of doing very much other than continuing your existence. So you keep the heart beating and the lungs breathing and all that sort of stuff, but you don't achieve anything else. In the dreaming state, you also don't achieve anything, but you imagine yourself achieving an awful lot. If you then get to a sort of a light dreaming state, you can actually change the dreams so that you can always have a happy ending. And that's not bad, but nothing really actually happens. You can then go to light sleepwalking, probably make yourself a peanut butter sandwich or something like that, and get back into bed. But you're not going to really achieve an awful lot. And then you get to the waking state. And that's where we also don't achieve an awful lot. Because it's just an ordinary waking state. It's not a particularly high state of consciousness. One day it's Monday, the next day we remember it's Friday. When you're a child, you know, if you ask a child to wait a minute, it wants to tell you something. You say, wait a minute. That's like an eternity for a child. It's tugging at you within about five seconds. Can I tell you now? But as you get older, years slip by. The last time you remember you were 16. Then it gets to be decades. You just wake up and you're 50. <laughs> the last time you were playing rugby. The last time you actually woke up. So a lot of life just drifts by in a dream. For how long every day are you actually awake? When you drive from A to B, or you travel from A to B, are you aware of the journey? Or do you just wake up for your stop? Well, there's a higher state than the ordinary waking state. And in this highest state of consciousness, man has limitless capacity. Whatever he sets out to do, he achieves. Only in this highest state do we know what is true and do we know what is false? There's a story 
about a wise king called King Jonica. And he was in the court and he fell asleep and he dreamt he was a beggar. And life was pretty terrible. He actually started to cry in the dream. And the dream was so real that real tears came out of his eyes and they woke him up. So he asked the sages in the court, he said, am I a king dreaming that I'm a beggar? Or am I a beggar dreaming that I'm a king? How do you know you're not in a dream now? Every time you wake up from a dream, everything disappears. How do you know this isn't a 25-year dream? You were hit over the head as a child. Well, you'll never know who you are. You won't know whether you're a king dreaming you're a beggar, or you won't know whether you're a beggar dreaming that you're a king until you wake up. Because when you're in a dream, you always take its contents to be real. You have to wake up out of a dream to know it was a dream. While in it, it's always real. So the question for you is, are you fully awake? And without being fully awake, one does not have the capacity to achieve what one really wants. So how are we to attain this highest level of consciousness? And there are three fundamental things. One is good company. That's the people you hang around with, the literature you read, the music you listen to, the conversations you have, and the thoughts you entertain in your mind, and the feelings you entertain in your heart. It's the company you keep. The second is the study of the words of the sages and scriptures, and the third is meditation. With these three, the human being can attain the highest level of consciousness and achieve what they really want to. And to bring this to an end, Socrates says that an unexamined life is not worth living. It's not worth living because of the errors in knowledge which will cause you to make the same mistakes as all the previous generations. Just like them, you will not achieve what you really want. So do you need to examine your life? Well, if you're not perfectly happy as you are now, then you do need to examine your life. If you do not realize that there's something beyond wages, goods, and derived pleasures, something which brings untold happiness, then you need to examine your life. If you worry, if there is fear in your life, then you need to examine it. If you depend on others and things for your happiness, then you need to examine your life. If you feel that you're not being true to yourself, then you need to examine your life. If you think your life is not turning out as you planned it, then you need to examine your life. If you do not know who you are in truth, then you have to examine your life. And if you knew you were going to die tonight and you would not die satisfied, then you need to examine your life. Why accept a life 
less than man was destined to live. Why not have a go and start the great human adventure to discover the truth about yourself? And then you will achieve what you really want. And that's it. Well, thank you. So, what question would you, or questions would you like to ask? You were saying that sometimes you have to work at being unhappy, but I was thinking that there are circumstances beyond your control which could make you unhappy, something going wrong in your life. And it can't be in your nature at that time to be happy. Your whole self would miss part of, say, if they died, like your body, your spirit, your mind, your heart. So I just find it hard to believe that well, you said that things could make you unhappy. If I said to you, I can make you happy, what's your response? Marry me. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right. We'll try this one then. <laughs> if I say to you, I can make you unhappy. I can make you. What's your response to that? Your immediate response to that? Yes. Yes. You would accept that? That if I want to make you unhappy, I can do it? Yes. Really? You accept that? Yes. Good Lord. <laughs> well, what philosophy says that you can't make somebody unhappy or you can't even make them happy. It's up to the person. Now, I'll just give you an example. Let's say I said, if my wife told me she didn't love me, that that would make me unhappy. Let's say that. And I'm lying asleep in the bed, and my wife comes in and she says, I don't love you. <laughs> it doesn't make me unhappy at all, because I'm asleep. <laughs> so her saying it, doesn't determine the outcome. There has to be a, a person waiting there. And they also have to value what the person says. So if a drunk comes up to me in the street and he says, I don't love you, that doesn't bother me either because I think they're drunk. It will determine what value I put on. There's many a man or woman who's danced on the grave of their dead spouse, and there's some who have grieved. The dying of a spouse doesn't make you grieve. It depends on the person who receives the event. And there's a lovely story about the Buddha. The, the Buddha is sitting under a tree silently, and a person comes up to him and starts to give out to him verbally, calls him all sorts of names. And the Buddha sat there silently, pitying the man's folly. And the man ran out of things to say. You notice this, if you don't say anything back, the person always runs out of things to say. The man ran out of things to say, and he became silent. And the Buddha said to him, My son, if someone offers a present to another, and the other refuses to accept the present, with whom will the present remain? And the man said, Will it remain with the giver? And he says, Will I refuse to accept thy abuse? 
and request thee to keep it thyself. And then as soon as night follows day and the shadow of the substance, evil will overcome the evil doer without fail. And the man went away ashamed and came back and took refuge in the Buddha. So that's the whole story. Now, you have absolutely no control over whether people give you abuse or not. But you have total control over whether you take it or not. You never have to take abuse. You just don't take it. If I said to you, will you take some arsenic? You won't take it because you know it's poisonous for you. Well, abuse doesn't do you any good either, so why take it? So you don't have to take it. Just to deal with the one of grieving. And you say, oh, well, I miss them terribly. So if you live in the present moment, you don't miss anything. And if I can tell the story again, before I turned to the right and asked this lady up to dance, about two years prior to that, I was going out with this girl. And I thought I loved her. And she said, she said to me she was going to America for three months. And I believed her. Anyway, so we went to the airport. And I was feeling terrible about this. This was awful. Three months without her. I fought back the tears and did all that sort of stuff and waved goodbye to her, and I'm walking away, and I said, this is just awful. How am I going to survive three months? And then what appeared in the mind was the suggestion, well, if it was a month, how bad would it be? And I thought, God, still terrible, because it was a long month. This would be awful, 31 days without this lady. And then I said, but if it was a week, how bad it would be. And I thought, well, it'd be bad, but it wouldn't be that bad. In fact, we'd actually been apart for a week on a number of occasions when we were going out. And then I said, well, if it was a day, would I mind that much if I didn't see her for a day? And I came to the conclusion I wouldn't really mind that much at all. And then I said, if I actually took it moment by moment, would I miss her at all? And the answer was no. So I took it moment by moment, I never missed her at all, and she never came back. <laughs> now, that wasn't me freezing my heart and all that sort of stuff. That was actually just living in the present moment. And to give you an analogy, if I said to you, do you think an apple is nutritious to eat? And unless you've got an allergy to apples, you'd say, yes, it is nutritious to eat. And I say to you, well, then, here's a great big Granny Smith, eat it whole. You'd say, no, if I try to eat that whole, it'll kill me. <laughs> All right? So here we have a thing which is nutritious, but has the capacity to kill, if you eat it whole. So if you want to get the nutrition out of an apple, you have to eat it according to a certain measure. The strength of your teeth, the width of your mouth, and all that sort of stuff. And if you eat it according to the measure, well, then it'll nourish you. If you live life according to its measure, it will bring you untold joy. And the measure of life is the present moment. That's the only moment you're ever asked to live. Nobody's been ever asked to live 30 years without somebody. They've only been asked to live this moment without someone. And then this moment and this moment. And if you live like that, you'll never grieve. You'll never be miserable. There's not enough going on now to make you miserable. Because you try and manufacture a bit of misery right now. Do you want to try it? Anybody 
can you feel it sort of working up? <laughs> you can't manufacture misery now. But if you say to yourself, oh God, I can see myself in my wheelchair on my own without my teeth and without my wife, then you could imagine misery. Uh, but you don't have to grieve in order to love. Is what? That you should grieve when they're gone? No, but the living life every moment. The idea of love is having eternal life. Yes, but every moment for eternity. Say you're with someone and you love them. Would you like them to be reminiscing about the past when they're with you? Would you like them to be projecting into the future? Or would, they, would you like them to be attending to you now? Would you like their company now? When you're in love, you're in the now, as they say. Grief is only produced through imagination. It's trying to swallow 30 years when you only have to live now. Again, all these things need to be really looked at. If you can produce grief from falsity, then grief is not real. Does that make sense? If you can make something out of something false, then it's not real. If I could make grief out of nothing, would you accept that grief is nothing? No, but if I, just if I could manufacture grief out of nothing, would you accept that grief is nothing? No, because I don't think you can do that. Oh, well, I'll try. Okay? <laughs> I wouldn't start this if I didn't have a way out of this. <laughs> well, there's a famous sage from uh, India, now dead, Ramana Maharshi. And this is how he proves that grief is manufactured out of nothing. He said, if you can imagine two young men who leave their village to go in search of the truth, the ultimate truth. And so they go up to the Himalayas to find a sage or an ashram that they can discover the truth in. And since I don't have Indian names, I'm going to call one Fred and one Sid from the village. Right, Fred and Sid from the village. Anyway, Fred falls ill and dies. And Sid goes on to discover the truth about himself and lives in eternal bliss. And about 10 years later, a man from the village comes to this ashram and he meets Sid in eternal bliss. And Sid says, could you bring a message back to the village? Can you tell my mother and father that I have found eternal bliss? And can you tell Fred's parents that Fred's dead? All right? He's a very succinct, uh, blissful man. The villager is a bit thick. And it's a long, long journey back to the village. So he gets confused. And by the time he arrives in the village, he goes up to Fred's parents and he says, I met Fred. He's living in eternal bliss. Now remember, Fred is the one that's dead. All right, so he's got confused. And he says, Fred's living in eternal bliss. And the parents are ecstatic about this. And he goes up to Sid's parents. He says, by the way, Sid's dead. And Sid's parents grieve for the rest of their lives. Now, there you have grief and joy produced out of nothing, out of a mistake. And if you can produce something out of an error, then it can't be true.
Whenever you're miserable, you have to put the mind into the past or into the future, either into memory or into expectation. But in the present moment, you won't be able to conjure up misery. Anyway, that's the possibility. Yes, anybody else? Happiness not just a state of mind. It's not just one struggle on a thought promotion. I'm reading that happiness can go and you can be unhappy. Everything that has an opposite automatically can be. So this contentment's not what you're looking for. There are a lot of moments. Yes. Ordinarily, I would use a different word. I'd use the word bliss. You've got happiness with a small h, which has its opposite of misery, with a, perhaps with a big M. So they are opposites, and they come and go, and they are simply states of mind. But behind that, there is something which doesn't change. And you can call it bliss or contentment or something like that. And in fact, just to take the Bible hints at this, that there is something beyond good and evil. If you take the Adam and Eve story, and in the story they ate of a particular tree, and the tree was the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, most Christians would think that when Adam and Eve ate of that tree, that that was the beginning of evil. But the story very clearly says it was the beginning of good and evil. So what was the state of Adam and Eve before they knew good and evil? Were they ignorant, or did they know something beyond it? The story intimates that Adam and Eve were blissfully happy without any knowledge of good and evil. And the question is, what did they know? And again, what philosophy would say is they knew the truth, or they knew bliss. Not happiness and misery, or good and evil, but something beyond it all. And you get a sense of that, say, with love. If you have a child, and just because the child is bad, you don't stop loving them. That your love for the child is beyond the goodness and the badness of the child. It's in a completely different arena. Truth is also said to be unconditional, and so is bliss. It's not conditional on your husband or wife dying at the same time as you. They can die well before you or well after you. Wouldn't it be fair to say that it isn't that they knew something, it was that fact that ignorance is bliss for them there. Because it's the fact that they don't know the difference between good and evil, that they are bliss Well, there are two possibilities. One is that it was just a state of complete ignorance, and therefore the phrase, ignorance is bliss. And the other one, it was a state of knowledge beyond good and evil. You can't really lose knowledge, though. Oh, of course you can. Have you ever forgotten a friend's name? Really? All right. Well, it doesn't make a difference. A casual acquaintance then, right? We reconcile our views. But you forget them. You know their name. They come up towards you and suddenly you just can't remember. Same with exams. Sometimes you remember before you go into the exam, you forget during the exam and you remember it immediately you come out of the exam. The mind doesn't always reflect what it knows. Sometimes you can't find it or it's hidden or it appears to be covered. Yes. So I just asked you a question about the point you made on true love. You compared it to the light bulb that's on. And I was just wondering if the light bulb represents love with a specific person or if it just represents the love, meaning that you can fall in love with different people at different stages of your life. It's not love for a particular person. 
that just is love. It's like this description. Ralph Waldo Emerson, he says, there is one mind common to all men. Every man is an inlet to the same and to all of the same. So if you were to represent that diagrammatically, you say there's one mind. That's how you would represent one mind, let's say. And everybody has an inlet to the one mind and to all of it. That's what Emerson says. Now, our common understanding is this is my mind. That's my friend's mind. <laughs> and that's somebody else's mind. And we think there are these different minds and they're different sizes. But there's another possibility. is There's just one mind and we all have the equivalent of a modem connection into it. But because of biases and preferences and prejudices, we cut ourselves off. So we say, I'm a sportsman. I'm, I'm an outgoing type. And in that part of universal mind, there's the outgoing knowledge. And there's also, let's say, uh, football and Budweiser. <laughs> so that's the limit of my mind. And there are people here, and they like to stay in all the time and read science journals and drink fantasy, something like that. I don't hang around with them at all, because they've got different minds to me. And then I meet somebody, and they like Budweiser, and we become friends. And I meet another person, and we're very good friends. And what I try and do is I try and find people who sort of have the same interests as myself. But the possibility is that if you got rid of these little perimeter fences, you would have access to all mind. And it's exactly the same with love. There just is love everywhere. But if you decide that you don't like old people or young people or loud people or quiet people, you don't experience the love that is there. True love. That's true love. It's there all the time, on the instant. To give an example, you know, when a child is born to you, you don't sort of start off by saying, I think I like it. You know, I had a son the other day, and I sort of like him a little bit. And then when he gets about four or five and can half kick a football, you say, I'm sort of getting to like him a bit more. Not like that. What you'll find is this. If the day comes you hold a child of your own in your own arms, you'll find that the love is instantaneous and complete on the very first moment. It can be the same in you know, ordinary human relationships as well, between man and woman. People can look across a room and know they're in love. Other people can look across a room for years and not know they're in love. What happens if he likes you or he loves you uh, unconditionally? And then that person, it's unavoidable. And like what, you spend the rest of your life loving that one person and causing pain. But loving that one person, say, firmly connected to that one person. You could do that. Then do you believe that you can fall into the lure? Oh, absolutely. Why not? If you like falling, why not fall more than once? Is, is, is it possible within your belief that you can love two people truly within your life? Oh, absolutely. Sure. sure. Imagine if you had twins. <laughs> what do you say? The first one out gets all my love? <laughs>
there wasn't time to deal with all the aspects of love. But one of the other erroneous ideas about love is that love is limited. I couldn't possibly love everybody. And this is just completely untrue. And a simple example would be, let's just make a mother, and a child is born to that mother. That's why she's called a mother. And uh, anyway, this child is born to her. And she gives it all her love. And then a second child is born. She doesn't have to take half the love away from the first child to give it to the second child, so now that you have two half-loved children. What you'll find is the love expands. There's no loss of love for the first child, but the love expands to incorporate the second. And then if the next time she had triplets, you'll find that there's no difficulty expanding now to, to love all five children. You can go all the way to all mankind. In fact, the entire universe. You don't have to stop with human beings. So what tends to happen is this, is that who you love is determined by your own image. And I'm just going to make up this hysterical type story. And I take it in terms of happiness rather than love, but it's the same thing. Let's say, and it can be from any county, but I'm going to take a Kerry man. So don't let me take offence if you happen to be from Kerry, there's nothing personal about it. This Kerry man comes to me and he says that he's very happy when he's with other Kerry people, because they're very like him, they speak the same way, they're the same interests, and they also support the Kerry team. And he says, but he finds his happiness is limited, and he'd like to enjoy more. So I say to him, I want you to become a monster man. And he comes back three or four weeks later and he says, fantastic. I'm now happy in the company of whatever number of counties there are in Munster. There are eight teams I follow or whatever it is, and if any of them win, I'm happy. However, I'd like to be happier. And I said to him, well, why don't you become an Irishman? And suddenly now, depending on your political beliefs, there's 3.8 million or whatever it is, 5.5 million people that you absolutely enjoy the company of. There's 26 or 32 teams you can follow. And he still wants to be more happy, so I said, why don't you become a European? And if he becomes a European, if a European team wins the World Cup, he's very happy as opposed to a South American team. And then he comes back and he says, I want all happiness. So I said, why don't you become a man? Which he always was. He just thought he was a Kerry man, a monster man, an Irish man, a European. If he could have only have identified with being man, he would have loved all mankind. Absolutely not. The Christian commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself is actually a law, i.e. it works. Whether you believe in it or not, it works, like the law of gravity. Yes. You love all men. It depends what you're talking about, whether you're talking about love. <laughs> you love all men, all mankind. It is all determined by the identity you hold. And if you can drop your identity, i.e. that I'm male, Irish, or Dubliner, or whatever it is, then you will find your capacity to love will increase all the time, until you get back to what you truly are. And what happens is, this commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, whatever you see yourself to be, like a Kerry man, then you will find yourself more at ease with people who are the same as yourself, i.e. other Kerry people. But if you discover who yourself really is, and perhaps yourself is universal, then you'll find that you love all things. Normally when a person becomes a vet, 
They become a vet because they love animals. Is that all right? And you would expect if they love animals, then if an animal dies, they would grieve. Because they love them. Because we associate love with grief. But you know, when you get a pet owner coming along to a vet, and they say, Rufus is dragging himself around the uh, kitchen floor these days, and the vet says, we're going to have to put him down. You won't find the vet crying. It'll be the pet owner crying. Now, who loves animals more? The vet dedicates his or her whole life to animals, and yet doesn't seem to grieve. He's actually quite capable of sticking a syringe into Rufus and sending them out of this world. And the reason that the vet can do that is because he or she loves all animals. Of course, the pet owner only loves one, my Rufus. And life without Rufus ain't worth living. And what you find is that it's not love at all. It's just attachment to one dog. Whereas when you love all dogs, you let them be born and die. And when you love all mankind, you let them be born and you let them die as well. You're just grateful for the time they spend with you. And why should you marry one? Why should you that? Because one is easier than two, basically. That's why. <laughs> yes. If you can love all unconditionally, without preference, it makes no difference who you marry. But if you happen to be a biased git, as most of us are, then you're probably better to select somebody that you think will live harmoniously with you. But for the wise man, it makes no difference. Makes no difference. Not at all. Again, just to take it from the Christian teaching, the Pharisees couldn't understand why Jesus was hanging around with the guys in the pub. Couldn't understand that. Why wasn't he hanging around with the good guys? Why wouldn't he condemn the adulteress? And the reason, if you study the Bible, Jesus says, I came not to judge. Why did he not judge? Because he loved everybody. Unconditionally. Is it realistic? Yeah. Absolutely. It's lovely, in fact. Just like with children, if you happen to have children, and you happen to have lots of them, you'll find that as each one comes along, the love expands to meet them. You'll find that it's the same as possible with neighbours or human beings or whatever. It is possible to allow your love to expand. We have set ourselves into a tiny little box and says, this is who I am and this is who I can love. If you take down the fence... It's like taking down the fence of your farm. Suddenly you're in a much bigger farm. It's the fence that limits the size of the farm. So it can be done. It's a pity if you have limitless capacity to love, to just pour it onto one person and spend the rest of your life either liking or disliking everybody else. Most people search for love in their lives. So why not search for it everywhere? Why not have more of it? You were going to say. In case of the fence now having the side of the farm, then do you think the gradual disappearance and diminishment of our cultural and sort of linguistic differences between different peoples is generally a, a good thing? What have people to love all of humankind? There's nothing wrong with separate cultures or separate languages or separate interests or any of these things, but they shouldn't be a limit. 
They don't have to be a limit. They can just be how you express yourself. Say I was a painter. Let's say there was talent. There isn't now, but let's say there was talent in painting. There's nothing wrong with producing excellent paintings. It doesn't mean I have to hate musicians. It's simply my offering to the world. That's where I show something good or great. If you take a garden, a garden is enhanced by the variety of the plants. The fact that they have different colors, shapes and sizes. Well, the variety amongst the human beings enhances the whole thing. So you wouldn't want some sort of common blob and everybody wearing the same clothes and even speaking the same language or any of these things. Every culture has something to offer and has its own specializations and its own glories. It's not possible for the human being to master all talents. There is specialization within the human function. So the idea is, yes, let there be specialization, but let there be unity of purpose. What happens is the purpose becomes very private, very personal and very limited. It's all for me. So let there be specialization in action, but unity of purpose. I.e., that if you do something, you do it for the benefit of all. Pacific Islanders would be convinced not to start, you know, just bowing the land of the speaking English, for example, arguing that they're contributing to human wealth, or, you know, how many farmers in the Amazon will stop burning down trees. Absolutely, and then that's the pity. Do you travel much? All right, well, let's say, let's say you did travel and you went to another culture and you mix with those people and you discover what they have, you'll find that your own life is enhanced by that. It's not a matter of abandoning your own culture and looking for a dominant culture, let's say, like the American culture, but it's not a matter of being isolationist either. It's simply specialization with a common goal. On a football team, let's say it's a soccer team, you have 11 players and there are 11 specialist functions, but they play for a common purpose. So the fact that they specialize enhances them. It's very rare you come across a superb goalie who's also a superb left back and a center midfielder and a center forward. So the specialization allows for greater and greater expression of a particular talent. The fact that they play on a team means that everybody benefits from the talent of each. And that's the way society is supposed to be. That Savannah story is that everybody has a talent and that talent will allow you to create something beyond your own needs. And the idea is to, to allow everybody else to benefit in the surplus. And you will also benefit in their surpluses. Excuse me, is it possible to love evil people? You don't actually love good people and you don't love evil people. You love people. So a person who loves will always differentiate between the behavior of the person and the person themselves. So, for example, if a child of mine was behaving badly, it doesn't mean that the love for that child is any less. Where the disapproval comes in is in relation to the behavior, not the person themselves. There's not a level of behavior. There's a difference between a child acting badly and someone who massacres people, for example. Well, yes. Well, even if one of my children became a serial killer, 
I would obviously extremely disapprove of the uh, seriality of their killing, but the love would never go. Did you love the child before the child No, it's because you love the essence of the child. It's like this. Love has nothing to do with the physical realm. If you get ugly children or good-looking children or tiny little ones or giants, one-legged ones or three-legged ones, it makes no difference. And whether you get intelligent ones or stupid ones or even nice ones or not so nice ones, it makes no difference. If there is love, it overcomes all of that. But that doesn't mean that you will like their behavior. If the behavior is evil you, and you're a so-called good person, you will absolutely disapprove of behavior. But any, say, reprimand or direction given to the child will always be given in love. You have no right to give a direction if it's not given in love. So it's like you sometimes find a mother shouting at a child, telling the child to be quiet. And that is motivated by the mother's desire to enjoy some quiet. The only validity for telling a child to be quiet is so that the child can enjoy quietude. Any direction from a parent to a child is for the child's sake, or else it's not really parenting. It's always in love. Gives you an idea of how little parenting goes on, but anyway. Yes? I just want to go back to an earlier point you made about um, not taking abuse from others. Take it. Can you give us some examples of ways to do that? Do you mean by not taking abuse, by um, we're saying not to react, do you mean to ignore it or not to let it get to you? No, you don't identify with it. So, for example, I consider myself to be. Irish, an Irishman. If somebody says to me, Spaniards are thick, doesn't bother me at all. If they say the Irish are dirty, and you know, the little tricolour is flying inside of me, then I find that I do get angry, because I identify with being Irish. Now, I happen to train as an accountant, and sometimes people very erroneously refer to accountants as either boring or as history writers. Well, if I, at that point in time, think I am an accountant, then I will react to it. But if I know who I am, then there is no basis for a reaction. People think they're a businessman. You ask me, what are you? And they say, I'm a businessman. And they dress like a businessman, and they have little gadgets that help them to do business. And just because they're wearing a pinstripe suit, they think they're a businessman. If you said to them, well, Say I put a pirate's outfit onto you, and we got this little parrot nailed to your shoulder. Would you call yourself a pirate? They'd say, no, I'm just somebody dressed up as a pirate. Is that all right? Now, how come when we wear a pirate's outfit, and we go around you know, with a sword in our hand and all that, we're only dressed up as a pirate, but when we dress in a pinstripe suit, we actually are a businessman? The fact of the matter is, you're none of these things. There's no such thing as a business man. There's only a man, you know, male or female, with the function of business person. It's only ever man there. And you'll always notice this, say, a so-called important businessman, and then they go asleep. You won't see an important businessman there. You'll just see somebody sleeping. No accountant ever sleeps. No mother ever sleeps. 
No businessman ever sleeps. The businessman only begins on waking up. What happens is you wake up and suddenly you think, my God, I'm a businessman. I'm supposed to be doing things today. And every time you go to sleep at night, the businessman falls away. The thing to do is to realize who you are, and then you'll never take any offense. If you say to me, am I an Irishman? Not at all. It's just where this body was born. That's all. It's a, a tag related to this body. Have you ever passed from one country to another? You ever say, go from France into Spain? It's unbelievable. You're going along, you're in France, and suddenly you're in Spain, and you can't tell any difference. Right on the border. What's the difference? It's just somebody decided to draw a line and say those to the left are French and those to the right are Spanish. Well, don't decide to be French and don't take abuse. It's like when people say, gosh, the Renault is a wonderful car. Remember, 206 is a wonderful car. And somebody happens to have a 206, and they glow inwardly because somebody has commented on the car. And then another person says, you know, Renault 206, or twerps. And then the person is very, very angry. Now, the comment is directed to the car, and yet the person identified with the car takes offense or glows. Well, never identify with what you're not. You are who you are. You can't become an orange, can't become an apple. Man cannot become a businessman or an accountant or any of these things. He is man. He or she is man. The question is, what is man? And you find that there's nothing to take offense about. All the comments have nothing to do with you. No, it's not. Intelligence belongs to the mind. Yeah, but that's the same thing as passing comment on the car. Say the car breaks down. Do you ever see somebody come into the office and they say, I broke down this morning? And you say, that was a quick repair job. They think they broke down, but in fact it's the car. They say, I got a puncture this morning. And you look at their feet and there's no sign of a puncture. It's always mixing yourself up with some object that you own. Now the fact of the matter is you own a body, a mind and a heart. There are three things you own. Any comment is in relation to something you own not the owner. Once you identify with your body, then you'll think you're small if you've got a small body. Never bothered Napoleon. He said, march, and a million men marched into Russia. He didn't think, God, I've got a tiny little body, they'll never obey me. If you think you're your body, well, then you'll think you're young. And unfortunately, one day you'll think you're old, and you'll think you're good-looking or unattractive. You're none of these things. You're beyond all of that. Something far greater than all of that. 
a deficiency in the body belongs to the body and a deficiency in the mind belongs to the mind. And you may discover one day that the owner has no deficiencies at all. It actually is pure, perfect and complete. Yes? Yeah, let's say you have the body and the mind are a reflection of you. So the way you kind of, if you buy a computer or a six or whatever, you take offense if something it's a reflection of you, you chose it doesn't mean. So that says something about it says something about your mind and the state of your heart. That's all it says. I find it very difficult to attach myself to uh, it's another thing, like, the realism, I think that your whole talk is very good about it as well. That's encouraging. But without ruling possibly, I find it very difficult to see that I could live in the present moment longer. Like, I don't really know what the chance of truth means. So, on a realistic level, I find it difficult. No, absolutely. Of course, to live in the present moment all the time is very, very challenging. But can you increase it? Say, if I said to you, is there no more room in your heart for an increase in love? Or do you think you're, you're full up now at this stage? There's no more room. Everybody admits there could be more love in their heart. If I said, have you reached the capacity of your understanding? Is the mind full up? Or could there be more understanding? Well, I've never met somebody who says I'm absolutely full up. There's no more room for increased understanding. So don't worry about whether you're ever going to get to the end of the road. Just keep going. Because as you go, there will be more love in your heart and reason in your mind. And with love in your heart and reason in your mind, you'll enjoy increased happiness. You don't have to worry about getting to the end. If you get there, you get there. But the journey itself is extremely interesting and extremely rewarding. So that's the way to look at it. You know, if you're at the bottom of Mount Everest and you look up there and say, I think I'll never get up there. And so I won't even start the journey. Well, unfortunately, you're going to be stuck at the bottom of Mount Everest. Well, why not just take the first step and find out where your limit is? Don't imagine there is a limit, so there's no point in starting. Go as far as you can and see, is there a limit? You'll find it's very much like money. I remember once I had a friend who was a qualified accountant it was back in the 70s, and he had a thousand pounds saved up. And I hated him. I thought, if I ever have a thousand pounds saved up, I'd feel so good, so secure. Well, unfortunately, I've passed that figure many a time. And there is no security in the sum. The figure keeps changing. If I don't realize when I'm dying, whatever, you send me out of the research, then I don't realize my own. You might die crying as opposed to die slashing your throat. Still be an advantage. You'll still have had a go. Remember one flew over the cuckoo's nest? Did you ever see that film? Anybody here see one flew over the cuckoo's nest? You should go and see the film anyway. Jack Nicholson plays the part of a rebel lunatic, basically, in an asylum. And there's this colossal Indian in it. And all his life, everybody's told the Indian that he's small. So he never attempts to escape, even though he could escape if he ever wanted to, because he believes he's small. Anyway, Jack Nicholson has a go at escaping and fails, and everybody laughs at him. And he says, but at least I tried. And that's the key to it. There's no point in standing at the bottom of the mountain saying, I wouldn't have made it. 
you have to find out. And what you may find is that this imaginary line of limitation keeps moving away all the time. You'll never find it. You'll never find the limit because it's not there. It's only in your imagination. Now, we do have one last question or we can leave it at that. One last question then. When you say, I'm absolutely certain that my mind is totally confused, there is a detachment. Or else that would not be possible. This is the description of the owner. This is the hidden description of the owner. What a body enjoys is pleasure and pain, birth and death. That's all it is. It's not going to offer anything else. The body will never offer you understanding. You ask your big finger, what's the meaning of life? It'll never yield an answer to you. It understands nothing. But it enjoys pleasure and it suffers pain and it goes from birth to death. The mind enjoys remembering and forgetting clarity and confusion and those sorts of things. And that's all it'll ever offer. Nothing more than that. And the heart will offer this happiness with a small H and the misery perhaps with a capital M at times. And it won't offer anything else. That's all it offers. But the owner is said to be eternal, unborn, indestructible, limitless, conscious, all-knowing, ever-blissful, pure, perfect, and complete. And when you know that to be true, you won't be in the least concerned whether your body is young or old, whether your mind is intelligent or stupid, or your heart is happy or sad. You're way beyond it. That's it. Thank you very much.